Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori. The United States just took a big step in confronting climate change with the passing and signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, arguably the largest single investment in U.S. climate policy to date. It's historic. But the bill passed with only Democratic support. Republicans who objected to the use of the reconciliation process to pass the bill were unanimously opposed. Was there a realistic pathway to securing Republican votes? And what could we expect if Republicans take one or both houses of Congress this November? To help unpack those questions and more, New York Times climate reporter and Epic Journalism fellow Lisa Friedman sat down with former Republican Congressman Carlos Cabello, who proposed a carbon tax bill when he was in Congress and co-founded the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. Carlos is a policy fellow at Epic this year. Let's listen into their conversation. We are speaking just, uh, I think, uh, an hour or so before uh, President Biden is expected to sign the um, Inflation Reduction Act into law. It includes $370 billion in investments over 10 years uh, in clean energy and other climate provisions. Let's let's just start with the bill. Tell me what you think of it and tell me what you think of the climate provisions in it. Well, what I'd really like to focus on uh, is the climate provisions because that's uh, what I spent a lot of time uh, just um, working on and uh, and um, uh, you know, trying to build consensus in favor of in Congress. So uh, I, I think it's it's all good news. I mean, it's a it's a bill that was heavily influenced by centrist Democrats. So in that sense, it's different than uh, some of the uh, big climate proposals we've seen in the past, like Waxman-Markey and even uh, the Green New Deal. And I think that uh, had it not, uh, had these provisions not been part of a reconciliation exercise, I think you would have actually gotten a a decent number of of Republican votes for this bill. So I I just think it's, uh, when it comes to the climate provisions, it's a big win for the country. Uh, you know, everything else, uh, obviously the, the, the tax hikes, um, some of the health care policies, uh, the expansion of the IRS, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that can all be debated. Uh, but uh, the, the climate provisions are healthy, a lot, lots of carrots, uh, you know, certainly no, no, uh, no sticks or not very many sticks, um, uh, which you know you, you you'd like to see eventually uh, in U.S. policy, but this is something that has to be celebrated. It's uh, it's um, a major achievement, and uh, it's going to significantly reduce carbon pollution. I, I want to dig into some of the carrot and stick conversation, but but first let's let's um, sort of go deeper on on the partisanship here. Why didn't it get a single Republican vote, including from Republicans who? Have been part of the Climate Solutions Caucus. Yeah, I, I think people have to be fair. The, the nature of any reconciliation exercise is uh, to exclude the minority. I mean, Democrats uh, designed this bill within this unique budget process specifically so that they would not have to negotiate with or include Republicans in any way. And, and there are certainly senators like uh, Mitt Romney and uh, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, uh, who we know uh, are extremely supportive of uh, at least uh, most, if not all of the 
climate policy and energy policy provisions in the bill. Uh, but when when it's a reconciliation process, it's it's partisan and uh, it it's just uh, uh, designed so that the uh, the minority has no say and and uh, is not. Um, you know, in any way relevant, and that and that's why uh, you got this result. So I don't think it's fair to judge Republicans uh, on climate, you know, based on the way they voted on this bill. I think we have to look back at the last two, three, four years, and uh, there are plenty of examples of uh, Republicans and Democrats working together on uh, on climate policy, and and I think that trend will continue. I mean, if I can pause there, I mean, yes, working together uh, across the aisle on small measures. Did Republicans make themselves irrelevant by denying climate change and then delaying action on big measures to address, to address emissions? Look, I think Republican. I mean, it can always be said that Republicans uh, can and should be doing more on climate because up until a few years ago, the party was doing nothing at all or next to nothing. So I, I don't think that criticism is unfair. I do think it's it's unfair to say, well, Republicans didn't vote for this reconciliation bill, which in addition to climate policy included health care policy and, right. and tax policy. Uh, so that this means that none of them care about uh, climate change and, and that they don't have anything to contribute. That That's just... That's uh, I, I just think that's unfair, and 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 I don't think it's true because up until now, all of the climate wins in recent years uh, had been bipartisan wins. Uh, everything from Murkowski Mansion at the end of 2020, uh, the banning of HFCs, uh, obviously the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, up until now, I think was the the most significant investment in uh, clean energy technology that the federal government had made. So uh, I, uh, I, th I think that trend will continue. Uh, this, this was a, a bit of an exception to that trend given the nature of uh, budget reconciliation. Uh, but uh, I, I, I foresee more uh, bipartisan cooperation uh, on climate policy. There's a lot of discussion uh, in the Senate or there has been uh, about a border uh, carbon adjustment uh, tax. Uh, so uh, I, I think um, um, there's, uh, there's, there's more uh, good news uh, in the months and years ahead. That's a fair point. I, I, hear, I hear your point. I will also point out that back in, I want to say January or February, after Manchin walked away first from the Build Back, what was then the Build Back Better Act, and negotiations were floundering, and there was uh, seemingly a live possibility that that uh, Democrats would pull out just the tax credits for clean energy and pass that as a standalone. I surveyed all 50 senators and none said they'd vote for something like that, even folks like Senator Romney, Senator Murkowski, um, who, as you as you note, have been, you know, have, have championed other measures. Um, but I, I recognize what you're saying that this was a, a partisan exercise from from the beginning, and and that likely um, became part of the decision making here. Talk, let, let's talk a minute about carrots, carrots and sticks. I mean, you've been 
a long supporter of a carbon tax. Um, this bill goes in a very different direction. As you say, you know, this is all about incentives. Um, there are there are penalties for um, excess emissions of methane, but uh, right. it's less than what some Democrats had envisioned and it phases out um, after regulations go into place. Where do where do things stand now on the possibility at some future time of a carbon tax? Is that just dead for now? Does this does something like this make it easier down the road for a carbon tax? How do you see it? Well, look the the um, the more uh, cl climate policy we have that's designed to to reduce emissions, the, the easier in many ways it becomes to implement uh, a price on carbon, right? Because it, uh, it, it makes uh, the pain lesser uh, uh, the, the, the further along the country is in, in the transition to clean energy. And of course, I mean, those of us who, who understand uh, the way these policies work, we are in effect pricing carbon by making all of these investments. It's mm -hmm. not a transparent price. It's not obvious to the consumer, but by offering tax credits to uh, clean energy developments, we're essentially uh, pricing carbon by favoring them over uh, traditional uh, sources of energy. So I, I think that the more uh, we adopt uh, sensible, smart climate policies, the easier it'll be one day to say, look, this is, let's call this what it is. There's a cost to carbon pollution. Uh, let's get a good estimate of what that is. And uh, let's, let's just do it because we're doing it anyway, except we're doing it in a confusing uh, and uh, somewhat insincere way. And, and I think that the more we, uh, we get deeper into this clean energy transition and to this clean energy economy of the future, the more motivated lawmakers are going to be to hold other countries accountable who, who are uh, polluting at higher rates and, and who are essentially um, making our efforts futile, right? Because we need uh, the whole world to, to, to collaborate and cooperate for this to work. So uh, that'll get us closer to a uh, a border adjustment tax uh, for carbon emissions, and and uh, one day you'll you'll just realize you're you're kind of there already, where you're uh, all but declaring that there's a a price uh, and a cost uh, to uh, carbon uh, pollution. Let's talk about a carbon border adjustment tax. What what do you see as uh, likely in the in the months ahead if, if Republicans take a, a House or the House or Senate? So Republicans and, and, and Democrats too, but mm -hmm. at this point, especially with uh, Speaker Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan, both parties have adopted a, a fairly confrontational approach uh, towards China. And uh, this idea of holding China accountable and of uh, uh, protecting um, important um, uh, parts of the American economy uh, from unfair Chinese competition and from threats to national security. Th this is gaining a great deal of momentum. So 
I, I can see a group of Senate Republicans coming together to uh, push for a, uh, a, a policy, which could be framed as uh, domestic industrial policy, right? Uh, that would uh, favor uh, American industry uh, over uh, foreign industry and specifically uh, Chinese industry. So I do uh, sense that this uh, concept of a uh, uh, carbon border adjustment tax is uh, gaining momentum. And uh, you even have some extremely conservative uh, Republican senators from deep red states uh, now expressing an openness to this. So I, I, do, I do think it has a future. Yeah, I mean, towards the, before the vote uh, in the Senate, I talked to a number of lawmakers, Senator Whitehouse and others who said that they were speaking to Joe Manchin about a carbon border adjustment tax. Senator Kevin Kramer spoke uh, very encouragingly about it. Senator Braun appeared open to, to discussions about it. it. It does sound like it has legs to impose a tool that would that would be designed to protect domestic manufacturing while pressuring other countries to reduce their emissions without though a direct price on carbon how do we do it do we calculate the cost of regulation some other it, it, essentially and by the way this is one of the reasons why uh, opponents to a domestic um uh, carbon tax are, are opposed to this policy because I think inevitably you will have to estimate the the, uh, the cost of, uh, of carbon and and once you've done that then uh, in many ways that's the hardest part but uh, I'm sure Democrats are not eager to calculate the cost of of regulations well that, that's right it it, it exposes a kind of it kind of leaves everyone naked in this whole uh, <laughs> policy space and uh, and could make for uh, you know a, a an at least briefly uncomfortable situation but um, you you would you you'd come up with the cost of, of our current you know, tax policy and a regulatory policy and uh, then use that uh, to um, to put up a barrier uh, at the border and of course to to uh, offer American exporters a credit at, at the border as well. Uh, but uh, I, I do think we're a lot closer to that uh, than, than, than people think, mostly driven by this um, uh, desire um, by American policymakers, and I think broadly speaking, the country to hold the Chinese accountable, uh, so to speak. So. Uh, I, uh, I, I do think uh, that uh, we're close to that and, uh, you know, it'll be complicated. Uh, there will certainly be challenges at the uh, World Trade Organization. And uh, that's where this process of uh, estimating the cost of, of regulation and of carbon ha has to be uh, transparent. Uh, and, uh, and they have to be able to, they're going to have to be able to defend it. You know, I, I was... Um remembering during the House vote, uh, I, I was watching on Friday, I was recalling the House debate ahead of the vote on Waxman-Markey, which you referenced earlier, the cap and trade bill that later died in the Senate. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, I think I even wrote a whole story back when I was in Climate Wire at the time, at that the, the entire focus from Republicans at that stage was China, that this bill would is a gift to China. We should call it the 
the Jobs for China Act. Um, you didn't hear that this time around. Uh, majority, uh, pardon me, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, you know, did did say something to that effect, but he was, as far as I heard, really the only one. Um, why do you think we're not hearing that kind of um, fears of manufacturing going overseas uh, as much with with this bill as we did with prior climate policies? Well, because I just don't think there's a lot of evidence to uh, to suggest that that's going to happen. And I think uh, if, if you notice, uh, most of the Republican criticisms uh, of this bill uh, are targeted at the tax provisions and the expansion of the Internal Revenue Service, a, a, a massive expansion over a decade. I think Republicans understand, and of course there, there are some exceptions out there that people can point to, but I think Republicans are, are fully understanding that policies that promote the transition to clean energy have broad support in the country, including uh, among younger voters in the Republican Party, among young conservatives. So I think Republicans are being very careful, rightfully so, about how they criticize this bill. And I, I did say to uh, another reporter that if Republicans are overly aggressive attacking the climate provisions in the bill, they could you know, roll back a lot of the progress they've made in recent years in terms of uh, their actual engagement and also what they're trying to project to the American people. Uh, Kevin McCarthy himself has declared that Republicans uh, are going to have a, a climate agenda and it's, it's important to them. He has admitted that Republicans need to do well on this issue in order to win younger voters in the future, if not now. So uh, I, I think there's been a, um, uh, a careful approach to criticizing uh, this policy, which is very different than uh, what we've been accustomed to seeing from Republicans, whether it was the Affordable Care Act or other attempts at uh, climate policy in the past, including the, the, the Green New Deal, uh, Waxman-Markey. Uh, so you're, you're seeing a different uh, kind, as you, as you well noted, a different kind of opposition, a more nuanced opposition. And then of course, um, with, with you know, the, the tax uh, title and, and the, uh, the expansion of the IRS, that's an easy target for Republicans. So, so that, that's no surprise. If Republicans take either the House or the Senate in the midterms, do you expect efforts to repeal this bill? I think you'll see efforts to repeal portions of this bill. I think certainly Republicans will uh, try to uh, roll back some of the tax hikes. I think they will uh, try to cut uh, funding for the IRS and, and limit the expansion if not uh, cancel it entirely. Uh, I think on actually on on both uh, healthcare and climate, I, I think Republicans will be uh, more careful and uh, 
uh, just um, uh, will avoid uh, coming across as, as uh, being uh, uh, too strongly opposed to those portions of the bill. And let's let's not also, you know, forget that there is not just stuff that they don't hate, but things that that many actively like in here. It is a fairly fossil fuel friendly bill. Um, the bill legislates new oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf uh, and in Alaska's Cook Inlet. It ties future renewable energy development on federal lands to oil leasing um, and gas leasing. Uh, it provides billions of dollars in incentives for capturing carbon and uh, provides billions of dollars in tax incentives for carbon capture and storage, um, among other things. Um, we've heard the, uh, Exxon and Occidental in their um, recent earnings calls talk about uh, the bill in a very positive light. Um, I'll just say this, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we've, yeah, talked, no, I a lot, we, we've talked a lot about how Republicans have unanimously opposed this bill and how, how outside of the reconciliation uh, dynamic that you know, perhaps that was uh, a little surprising. But I, I have to say, I think it's at least equally surprising that all Democrats voted for this bill. I mean, this is a bill that is um, at least I'd say kind to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, Mr. Manchin did a lot of work uh, to, to, to guarantee that. And uh, I, I'm impressed that Democrats were able to be so disciplined and uh, pragmatic, especially those on, on the far left to accept uh, these wins, even though there, there are what would you typically consider poison pills uh, in the legislation. So that, that's remarkable too. What else can we expect from Republicans uh, if in a, in a Republican-led House or Senate on climate? Uh, I, I, I think you will see Republicans looking for opportunities to continue making modest gains on climate policy. And I know that for, for some people that sounds disappointing or it sounds like a letdown, especially after this uh, big win here on climate policy, but um, people have to get some perspective and, and remember uh, the the polarized world uh, we're we're uh, coming from. Where uh, just a few years ago uh, there was no uh, bipartisan uh, cooperation, no, not even bipartisan dialogue. We got that started in 2015 with the in 2016, really with the. Uh, Climate Solutions Caucus, and that was the first time that, that Republicans and Democrats really formally got together to discuss this issue. So we have come a very long way, and if we get divided government and uh, both parties are able to continue moving in the right direction in this policy space, that would be wonderful news. That would be something that just a few years ago was unimaginable, and it'll make a difference, number one, because we won't lose ground, right? The floor will not drop. And uh, you know, on the contrary, we'll, we'll continue uh, bending the arc towards emissions reductions, towards greater efficiency, towards uh, the clean energy economy that I think most people wanna see. Why do you think Republicans, and, and I'm talking about Republicans who acknowledge climate change and say they wanna address it, 
Why do you think there is a reluctance, a hesitancy to talk about targets? Or even frankly, you know, how many tons of emissions they, you know, want to reduce from the atmosphere with some of their proposals, whether it's CCS or planting trees. Um, but one well, uh, or even two degrees seems like a conversation that very few want to have. Yeah, I think number one, that's just not um, part of the Republican lexicon yet. Uh, that Republicans don't like to talk about reducing emissions. They like to talk about clean energy and uh, promoting uh, um, you know, innovation and technologies that will make us more competitive. Uh, so, so I, I think there's a there's a language issue there, and and also I think Republicans don't want to get locked into supporting policies that uh, either they don't like or or that their friends in industry don't like. So that's uh, it, it's it is something that that I've certainly noticed. Uh, Republicans want to uh, say the right things and in some cases do the right things, but they don't want to get locked in uh, to, uh, to a set of policies that they may not want to support. And once you start talking about specific targets, then that certainly uh, restricts uh, the, um, the latitude you have uh, for policymaking. Another area where I, I see a gap is around urgency, right? So, so I mean, and, and here again, you know, I'm not talking about, um, I mean, I know there is a tendency among some Republicans to denounce all climate talk as climate alarmism, but, you know, I think you find that even folks who care about this issue um, think that there is not the urgency that Democrats say there is, but Democrats say that there is because scientists say that there is. Um, put Put this in perspective for me. I mean, First, I'd love to know for you as someone who has dealt with and worked on this issue for a long time, how urgent is it <laughs> to, to reduce emissions? And, um, you know, and then I'd love it if you could, could speak to, you know, you know why, why this, this, there does seem to be a gap there on, on how we think about that, how different parties think about the urgency. Look, my... Uh outlook on this is that uh, neither alarmists nor uh, denialists, deniers, uh, contribute very much to policymaking on this issue. Obviously, those who deny basic science, I mean, they're, they, um, they, have, they have no valid point at all. Uh, those who are alarmists might uh, base that alarmism on, on some uh, scientific evidence or data, but alarmism doesn't really uh, contribute to the policymaking process what, in Congress, not, not in our country. <laughs> right, but like, what is it alarmism to say we need to keep global temperatures from rising above 1.5? Well, I, I, I think it's a lot. No, no, but I think it's alarmist to say, well, if we don't act in 12 years, it's all over. Okay. And uh, you know we're we're doomed or or whatever it is. Like the the reality is that uh, of course the sooner we act, the better. Uh, the longer we take to act, the more painful this will be, and the more difficult this will be for greater the greater greater number of people. The more it will cost. But 
to say that that humanity will not be able to adapt and and to uh, paint this uh, apocalyptic uh, outcome. Number one, a lot of people don't believe it. And number two, even if it's true, it's not helping move the needle because people can't wrap their minds around it. So I think that the way this, this law came to be is a great example of what works. And what works is sobriety, pragmatism, and acceptance of, uh, of, of some gains uh, without getting what, what people may think is, is the, you know, the whole enchilada or whatever you want to call it, right? So um, I, I, I think Republicans, and, and part of this is the, the populist streak the, the party has adopted since uh, Donald Trump came on stage. I mean, there is, there is this, and, it, and it's a, a problem uh, to, to a great degree in the Republican Party that um, you know, these populist attitudes in the face of scientific data and evidence uh, uh, oftentimes win the day. And look, I, I think, uh, for example, if we look at another recent salient issue, the pandemic, uh, I think Republicans, uh, some feel validated in uh, rejecting some of the recommendations made by scientists during the pandemic, right? When you see states that had very high restrictions and lockdowns have very similar healthcare outcomes to states that, that had fewer restrictions and, and, uh, and, and very short lockdowns. So, uh, I think some Republicans are are fearful of landing on that side of the spectrum, and and you know, Lisa, I mean, everyone's worried about their primaries these days, Republican and Democrat, and Republicans just careful uh, to not align themselves with uh, views or attitudes or perspectives that are perceived as liberal by their constituents, because that's uh, how you lose a primary, and we've certainly seen uh, some Republicans lose primaries. Uh, this cycle. Uh, and, you know, some similar things have happened to Democrats uh, in, um, in, in their party for different reasons. But what, what is motivating all this, and I'm not excusing anything or saying that, that I agree with anything, but I'm, I'm, uh, what is motivating all of this is primary politics uh, and people wanting to, to avoid uh, being cast in a certain light. Let's let's maybe end on on primary politics. Tell me how you think this. You know, I, I've covered enough enough campaigns to know that uh, nobody nobody really votes on on climate change as their their top uh, issues. But but how do you think this this win that Democrats in the Biden administration just had is going to play in the midterms? So look, Democrats now have uh, more to. Put in front of voters uh, in November of this year. Uh, the party just uh, some weeks ago was in disarray. Uh, they had no momentum. Uh, they were on defense. And uh, they, they put together a, a win streak here in the last few weeks. And, and this is a big exclamation point on that win streak because this is something that, number one, is important to uh, Democratic base voters, and, and both parties need their base voters to be motivated and to turn out. So this certainly checks that box with climate policy, policy uh, and health care. And uh, when it comes to the climate provisions, this is an issue that's important to suburban 
voters, those white college educated voters who have become the swing voters uh, throughout the country in recent elections. And this is important to them too. So what looked like it was gonna be a disastrous election for Democrats is now starting to turn a little bit. And, and, and they still have plenty of structural factors against them, history, inflation, uh, the, the American electorates uh, just bias for uh, divided government or for limiting the, the party that, that is in, in power. Uh, but uh, you know, right now, I think things are looking a lot better for Democrats than they were just a few weeks ago, I think uh, Republicans are still strong favorites to take the House, but perhaps not by such a wide margin. And uh, the Senate, for, for Republicans, the latest forecasts are that a status quo scenario would actually be a win. So, so Democrats might uh, be able to retain the Senate, and, and for the Biden administration, that would make for a much smoother uh, second half of the term than uh, the alternative. Carlos, it is always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for all of these insights. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Oreck.